Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Scores studios with co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. Still not going with the what up. Even though we it's actually done, got, dead. We got listener feedback saying that they missed the what up, you're still not going to it. Sorry, folks. Uh, it's dead. It's not coming back. But don't worry. I got lots of great greetings in my bag, man. I, I, I haven't even burned through half of this bag of incredible greetings tricks. All right, well, have you at least burned through half of the details related to the potential schedule changes that the NBA might employ two years from now so we can talk about them? I think so. I think I have a decent grasp on it. Um, All right. So in case anyone hasn't heard or, or doesn't know the details, on Saturday, I believe, ESPN's Zach Lowe and Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the league is at a point where they've discussed this enough that they actually might vote on it later this season for implementation in the 2021-2022 season, which would be the NBA's 75th anniversary season. And there are four key points. One, the regular season itself would be shortened from 82 to 78, but there's some wiggle room there because not everyone will end up playing the same amount of games. There will be a mid-season tournament that will commence in the post-Thanksgiving portion of the season. Now, some of the tournament will actually just be regular season games in division, divisional games. The six divi- quote-unquote division winners from that pool of games will then advance to an eight-team tournament along with the two best runners-up, essentially, from those divisional games. The tournament is then what the add-on would be. These are now not regular season games. This is your, these are tournament games. It'd be single elimination, quarterfinal, semis, and final and there would be some sort of financial incentive, most likely, um, for the players and the franchises that advance and win the tournament. The third key is the playoff play-in, where at the end of the season, 7 versus 8 would play each other in a one-game play-in. The 9 and the 10 seeds would then play each other, and the winner of that would play the loser of the 7-8 play-in to determine the last playoff spot. And other than that, the last thing would be that when the playoffs get to the conference finals, the NBA would then do away with conferences and reseed the four teams, one and four, two and three, based on regular season record. So we could finally have a situation where if you know if the two teams in the West are 65-win teams and the two teams that emerge from the East are like a 52-win team and a 48-win team, the two Western conference teams would not actually have to play each other in the conference finals. So with all that out of the way... Give me your thoughts. Do you like it? You think it's crap? What are we saying here? I mean, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. So I think there's a lot of crap in there. Okay, well, where do you want to start then? Like, tell me what you think is crap, and, and maybe we can start there. Okay, so shortening the regular season, good. Shortening the regular season by no more than four games, and yeah. probably not even four games to me. There's and, also a point in there about how some teams might actually end up having to play up to 83 games. Exactly. So, so you're not shortening the season, really. You're just, mm-hmm. you've slightly condensed the regular season so that you can fit in this other money-making tournament, which is fine. I understand. It's a yeah. business. I'd still, if, if they're going to do anything to the schedule, I still think they need to shorten it considerably if they actually have the player's best right. interests at heart. I would just say maybe they're kind of putting this out there as like a trial balloon to see if we cut these four regular season games out of the schedule and replace them with these mid-season tournament games, are we making back the revenue that we lose with those four regular season games and then some? Whether it's with gate, 
TV viewership, sponsorship, whatever it happens to be. And from there, if you create a model that you can prove works, then maybe you start to look at cutting down the season even more. But I'm with you. Like, I don't think that that proposal goes nearly far enough in terms of cutting down the regular season or, you know, incentivizing the regular season, which I feel like is sort of part of the impetus for this. But I'm somewhat intrigued by, and, and I mean, the, the schedule reduction and the in-season tournament do go hand in hand. So maybe we can just talk about those t- two things together. But like, I'm somewhat intrigued by that idea. And, and obviously it's just contingent on whether any of the teams or players would care about it. And I don't know how you just generate that level of interest or commitment. Like to me, I'm thinking that probably teams would just look at that as an opportunity to rest guys, especially because they're doing it in regular season games anyway that actually count toward the standings. Like why would they not do it in a tournament that doesn't? How do you create prestige, meaning, significance for that in-season tournament? I just... I think that might be an area of struggle. I don't have a problem with them experimenting with things. Like this is part of why the NBA is is what it is, especially under Adam Silver, is that they are willing to think outside the box. So while I might not like the the fact that, you know, a midseason tournament would change everything I know about the NBA, I'm willing to accept it and and go in with an open mind. I don't though believe that you can manufacture organic fan feelings for something. And I don't think, like you mentioned, you know, you can't manufacture prestige. And if you're the fan of a contending team, I don't think you give a crap about what how your team does in this midseason tournament that just gets the players and or the franchises more money. If you're the fan of a really bad team, unless they somehow tie this potentially to the draft order or something like that, but if you're a fan of a bad team, like, I don't know, with with them winning this midseason tournament that, again, really doesn't mean anything because it hasn't meant anything for 74 years of NBA history, would you all of a sudden make you feel like your team accomplished something like this? Like, I don't know. A lot of people point to the European soccer model, and this is where the NBA has gotten this idea. It works in soccer because it is so ingrained in the sport there, in the consciousness of fans there. Like, if you are a fan you know, in Italy, in England, in Spain, whatever it is, you know going in that there are multiple titles up for grabs. There's the re- the league title, the league cup, the continental tournaments. It's already ingrained in you to care about all of those cups. And in some ways, they almost all have equal meaning there. Like, that's why they call it the treble if a team can win all three of them. In the NBA, I don't think anyone's caring about winning the double, winning the midseason tournament. In the ch- and I just... I'm well, not trying yeah. to be negative about well, it. I just think... Y- the NBA is going to have to accept the fact that not a lot of people are going to care. I think people will care to the extent that players and teams care. So I think the first step has to be incentivizing the players and teams to care about it. And whether that is through bonuses, you know, uh, cash payouts, like whatever it happens to be, like, you you know, you mentioned tying it to to the lottery. I think there are, are any number of ways that you can try and incentivize it for the teams and players involved. And once there is that buy-in on the part of the people who are actually participating in it, then I think you will start to see that buy-in from fans. Because as long as, you know, the players are acting like they have something to play for, I mean, that's what gives these things meaning, really. And you're right. Like, it's not ingrained in basketball culture. It hasn't been part of the NBA regular season. So right off the bat, people probably won't care about it as much as soccer fans care about those midseason tournaments. But you have to start somewhere. So 
I don't think it's the worst idea. I definitely have some questions about it, but I think if you can find a way to incentivize it to the extent that teams and players are taking it seriously, then they might have something there. All right, the playoff play-ins. I'm actually not that against this. I think the issue is that you end up in situations like even in recent years, there's been 10 seeds in the East that are like 34-win teams, and now we're giving them a shot to get to the playoffs. I think that kind of sucks. But again, I'm open to the idea. The only thing I wish, if they're going to do this, I wish they would then shorten the first round to a best of five again. Because then I just feel like that first round-ish really does drag on. Yeah. And between the play-ins and... Like, the first round right now already drags on. Because there's extra days off in the first round as compared to any other round besides the finals. So it's not always every other day. Like, you'll have game one of a series will be on a Saturday. Game two will be on, like, a Wednesday randomly or a Tuesday it already drags on. Maybe they just can, they finally condense the first round into two weeks by adding these. I don't know. But I'd like them to go back to best of five if they're going to have this plan because it also just ups the, the potential for randomness. One thing I'd say, you know, to your point about having a 34-win 10 seed with a chance to make the playoffs, I feel like probably the hope on the NBA's part is that that team that's kind of on the bubble where they ha- they're like on pace for a 32-win season rather than resting guys down the stretch and tanking toward like a 26-win season where they have a better chance of getting a high pick, they actually make a good faith effort to get to 34 wins so that they can get that play-in game. And, and you know, the promise of not only the, the revenue from that, from that play-in game, but from potentially two other home games in the playoffs. I don't know if that'll work, but I feel like maybe that's the thought process there. I'm iffy on the play-in game too, just because... I think in general, I would rather the teams that have proven to be better over the course of like a six-month season be the ones that make the playoffs. Um, but look, I was also skeptical of the wild card game in baseball for that exact same reason. Like you play 162 games and now you're going to make a team with a better record have to fight for his life in this one game random sample uh, that could knock it out of the playoff picture. Uh, it seemed asinine to me. But I love the wild card game in baseball. Like, it's probably my favorite part of the baseball playoffs. And But the, the counter there is... It's a-, it's a lot different in baseball. If, I don't know if that's what you're going to say. But yeah, like in baseball, if like the playoffs are so much more of a crapshoot. Like if you get into the playoffs in baseball you have a legitimate chance to win it all, as the Nationals just did. Yeah, you're going from 162 games to a best of five off the bat, even if you don't have to play Right, so the stakes, I don't know if the NBA could generate the same kind of stakes because in basketball, realistically, if you're one of those teams that wins a play-in game, you're going to get stomped in the first round regardless. The other thing I was going to mention too is in baseball, the wild card game is, you know, it's between the four and the five seed. Usually, in mm-hmm. ba- like there are situations where if the best second place team is actually just the second best team in the league, it could be like the two versus five seed. Yeah. But for the most part, it's four versus five, three versus five, maybe. The teams are generally pretty good. Exactly. And I think ultimately, it's not even so much about the quality of the team so much as you're putting something on the line. Now, you know, how much do fans like whether it's casual fans or fans of those teams involved, going to care about that one game where you pretty much know you're setting yourself up for a date with one of those top teams that are going to throttle you? I don't know, but I'd be curious to find out. And I would say just because of like the way my opinion has changed on the wildcard game in baseball, I am willing to give that one a chance. 
so yeah, that that one I'm a little higher on. I, I feel like the the reseeding thing is probably the proposal in here that I like the best. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that because I think that's the thing I like the least. Really? Not the the idea. I, okay. I mean, go, like, go ahead and then I'll give you. Well, <clears throat> I I think that it's kind of a half measure. Exactly. But that that's still better than no measure and. I understand why I, I understand why they're reluctant to reseed the entire playoff field. Like would it you know, ideally be the case that you could seed one through sixteen and kind of mitigate conference imbalance entirely? You know, not have conferences matter, have the sixteen best teams make the playoffs and, and seed it that way and reseed every round. I think, you know, that would be a true meritocracy and maybe that would be the best way to go about it. But because of travel and, and all the other considerations there, I don't know if that's realistic or if that is really on the horizon. You know, I think as far as, as reseeding the conference finals, I do think it probably gives you a better chance of seeing the two best teams in the finals. My issue is the fact that it's a half measure. And look, I get Adam Silver has said, I, he told me, literally me, because I asked him about uh, I remember, yeah. about this at All-Star Weekend two years ago. And well, I actually you asked, asked him, him a totally else. different yeah. question, yeah. And and he responded with this answer about the playoff reseeding, and he mentioned that, you know, a lot of people don't consider the travel, the extra travel that would be involved in the first round of the playoffs. Imagine like an LA New York first round. That's a lot of travel, obviously. Fair point. Another thing you mentioned is given the way the schedule is currently constructed, it would still be imbalanced because a lot of East teams would have an easier schedule. So if you go top sixteen the 15th or 16th best record might end up being an East team, but because they got to beat up on the East a little more. So I think if you were going to go that route where you just scrap the conferences, go one to 16, then you just balance the schedule in general. So I'm not even going to go that far. But what I do think is like forever, the NBA has resisted doing what the NFL currently does and what the NHL used to do, which is reseeding the teams within the conference after the first round to ensure, say, that if for some reason the seven seed beats the two seed, now you're, you're in a situation where like in the second round, three gets seven and one has to play four instead of one, since they're the best team, getting to play seven. The NFL, and again, the NHL used to reseed after every round. The NBA never did that. And a lot of the talk was that they liked the fact that there was a set bracket for a variety of reasons. They're already admitting now that they're going to do away with the, the set bracket because it could change after the center. So why not just reseed all the way through? Fine. You want to start with the conferences? That's fine. But at least reseed in the second round. Like, I, I don't understand this weird half measure where they decided it's going to start in the conference finals. I also think it's weird that you're going to have a Western conference and an Eastern conference all season. And then at the end, be like, oh, actually, it doesn't matter. The conference finals have nothing to do with what you know what I mean? Like all of that to me just seems so strange and yeah. it is the definition of what happens when you take a half measure. Right. So go big or go home. Like my issue isn't receding. It's the fact that it's a half measure. I guess, you know, the question to me is like, do you lose something without, I kind of like being able to look at the playoff picture and to know what your potential road through the playoffs is actually going to look like. Where it's like, these are the teams that you're going to likely have to go through. And when you're reseeding, you really actually don't know who you're going to end up having to go through in the semis. Is that uncertainty a good thing? Uh, or is it a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, it's you'll never know, I guess, until you try this stuff. Um, I think it can help. Like One easy example that I would just throw out is like the 2018 finals, where we had to watch the Warriors run roughshod over that 
pretty lousy Cavs team. That almost rather, won game one because of LeBron's heroics. <laughs> yes, yes. But rather than play the Rockets in what would have been an absolutely epic finals, like we still got that epic series, but I think the NBA and probably a lot of fans would rather that series have happened in the finals than um, in the semis. I think an interesting question is like, I mean, I mean teams kind of celebrate winning their conference. They hang conference banners. How would that change? Does that really matter? I mean, maybe that's a small thing. Um, I mean, you know, the other thing is, I guess, the best regular season records, especially these days, when the regular season seemingly is being disincentivized all the time, aren't always indicative of the actual league hierarchy. So it might make no difference. Like, if you look at last year, the Blazers would have played the Bucks in the semis instead of the Warriors, which I feel like they might have preferred, actually. So um, I don't actually know that there's a clear incentive structure there. And the other thing is maybe it's actually good to have good teams playing each other earlier in the playoffs when there's less wear and tear and like less risk of one of those teams having a significant injury. And, you know, like they'll still play an epic series. It might not be for all the marbles, but that series will still be there and it will still help decide the championship in some way. But I think ultimately the goal is to get the best and most competitive possible matchup in the finals. And I do feel like this probably helps you get there. Yeah. Well, and the overall goal of these changes is more revenue, right? I'm not trying to be kind of jaded about it. I'm just, you know, I think that's what it is. And again, the NBA is a business trying to maximize its profit. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I think... It's it's concerning that it's at the expense... It could be at the expense of players' health for sure, which is why I said they should shorten the season to begin with. But... I do think, I mean, this does seem to be the, a response to the fact that the ratings are flagging right now. And I think there are a lot of, you know, speculative notions about why that might be. You know, whether it's like LeBron playing on the West Coast where the games start later and people on the East Coast aren't necessarily staying up to watch. Uh, no more Warriors dynasty. Too much player movement. Too much flopping. Too many stoppages in play. It could be any of those things. It could be none of them. It could be all of them. But I think the truth is nobody really knows. I personally think, you know, some of the ideas in this proposal are better than others. I, like you, don't think it goes nearly far enough to address the length of the schedule or regular season incentivization. You know, it doesn't address what I consider the problems to be, but that's just my opinion, and I might be wrong about that. So I think we'll just have to wait and see. But I do think it's clear that the situation, you know, is dire enough or the league considers it dire enough that they felt like they had to do something. So... If nothing else, I think you admire the proactivity on their part. Till the last day I ever get paid to talk about the NBA, I will throw this out there as the idea for a 30-team NBA, and that is a 58-game schedule. 29 games home and away, which is actually soccer style, where you just play everyone in the league home and away once. Mm -hmm. Then the top 16 make it. There are no conferences. Could you imagine how much more meaningful the regular season would be. Like every regular season game would be like, you want a ratings bonanza, that's it. And I understand that that would be a massive like revenue cut to the league because you're taking more than a quarter of the season away. But I think what a lot of people forget is like the league doesn't make nearly as much money from gates, like from ticket sales and concessions and all that. And people actually go into the games as they do from TV networks paying for the rights. And I think if... Well, you're also taking all of those games off of TV, though. So. Yeah, but are you also then increasing the ratings for each game? You know what I mean? It might not just be that these networks aren't just paying for the package of total games. They're also paying for the ratings themselves. No, I understand. And so if, if you you're, take away if you're a quarter one of, the, of the games, but your ratings go up 25%, which is a huge number, I understand <laughs> that. But 
You know, maybe they can meet me in the middle. He does, Adam Silver doesn't have to agree to 58 games. Yeah. Meet me somewhere in the middle here. Um, 70. One proposal, actually, that I really like is just the idea that whatever order you sort of finish in uh, in the regular season standings, that's the order in which you can pick your playoff opponents. I think that would actually be a pretty nice incentive structure and a reason to try harder in the regular season and, and care about seeding. And I think that could be really fascinating in terms of like the way that those teams choose who they want to play against, the drama that that would manufacture for the teams that get chosen, like the team that gets picked first, like how easy would it be to gin up storylines about feeling disrespected and having the extra motivation when a team specifically decided it wanted to play you? I think that would be super cool and could be a fun way to generate interest, especially if they had, you know, like a Selection Sunday style event where yeah. these teams actually put in their picks for who they want to play. That would be that would be one solution that I would really like. But That, that could muddy things up though because, well, I guess you would just have to ensure that the teams make the selections by a certain time on the final night of the season because right now playoff schedules for the first round come out late at the end of the first the last yeah. night of the regular season and if the teams are going to start selecting who they play they would have to make sure they select it in a timely manner that the league can get those schedules locked down what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to pound the rock on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, I think we've covered enough of yeah, enough of we don't even know what it is yet because it could be all of those things come into effect, none of them could come into effect. It's got to be voted upon and it's still 2 years away. Right. Even if it is voted Lots upon. Lots of time to fine tune yeah. it or potentially throw it out the window entirely. So uh, a team that I don't think has a lot of time to figure things out and let's just start with them as we're going to take a look around this. I think there's really three teams we're going to talk about mainly, but I guess we'll hit the other two in the division. We're going to talk Southwest. So let's start with the Spurs. 6 and 11. After beating the Knicks on Saturday at MSG to snap what was the longest losing streak of the Popovich era, eight games, they have not beat a winning team yet this season. They're two and seven on the road and only four and four at home. They have the fifth best offense and the fifth worst defense. They're currently 11th in the West. I think DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge have been fine. They've been what they are. We know what that is. And it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Jante Murray and Derek White, again, I don't think have been bad, but I think have been somewhat disappointing for people like myself. And I think like you too, like who, who we talked about both of them as potential, not actually winning most improved player, but guys in that conversation. And I don't think they've taken that kind of leap, even yeah. though they haven't been bad. Well, Murray's on a minutes restriction, which hasn't helped. White's been coming off the bench because they need Bryn Forbes' shooting to space the floor in the starting lineup. Those two guys have barely played together at all, which is something I know we were both excited to see before the season started. Hasn't happened. And that makes it a little bit tough to judge, I think. Murray, I guess, has been a little bit disappointed just because the jump shot really doesn't seem to be there, You know, not only in terms of how it looks or his accuracy, but just his unwillingness to really even take it. For now, like he's been awesome in transition, and that has... I think helped keep the Spurs offense afloat in a lot of situations, but he's kind of 
like I think he's better defensively and obviously is like quite a bit smaller and um, maybe not quite as good a passer, but he's sort of just like a smaller Ben Simmons at this point. Wow. I don't know. I mean, like that's obviously a good player, but given the Spurs roster construction, I feel like they need him to be something a little bit different than that. And I don't know if he can be while DeRozan is still on the roster. And, and I don't know how they really solve that issue because I don't know that DeRozan has a ton of trade value. Like yeah, He has a $27 million player option for next season. Which, if I was him, I would think really hard about picking up. Because if you look at the teams that are slated to have cap space next summer, I believe they are the Hawks, Hornets, Cavs, Knicks, and Grizzlies. So which of those teams I think- is going to pony up to sign DeRozan. The, you don't think if he was an unrestricted free agent that the Hornets would give DeMar DeRozan a max deal? I think they would. I think they would. Yeah? I, I do. Given, I, given that they've already like tied up so much of their cap in Rogier and that Devontae Graham's had this big breakout this season? I think, I think you're thinking logically. I uh, think teams yeah. like the Hornets don't think logically. They just look at it as like, how are we putting butts in the seats? How are we getting anywhere close to even like semi-competitive and getting? But that was the case with Kemba's free agency, and they didn't offer him the max. So, well, Kemba also could have gotten a, a more money by staying in Charlotte than they could give DeRozan, right? Over four years, I'd imagine. Yeah, they could have. Yes, for sure, because they so, had his bird rights. Right. So I guess he was it, super max it, eligible. Right. So it's still more money that they would have had to give him than they could give Demar Derozan, and maybe they don't give him the max, but maybe they give him. Like, if you're DeRozan and you can pick up the $27 million player option, yeah. or you can get four years and 100 mil. I mean, probably the, more than that. Right. Look, the reality, like the reality is, I think, you know, his agent's going to be doing due diligence before free agency actually hits, and he'll probably have a better sense of what the market is going to be for him. If you're Atlanta, that will help inform that decision. You don't think it, like the Hawks would, would do that? I don't. Like, um, they are, Trey Young can shoot. Yeah. Collins. When he gets back. But but Trey Young also needs the ball in his hands. That's and fine. I- it's not, though. And this is, you know, this is the issue with DeRozan. DeRozan's a good player. He really is. And and that's what sucks about, like, he kind of is always just getting dragged uh, when, when we talk about basically what he is as an NBA player. And it's disappointing because he's worked really hard to, to become the player that he is, and, and that player is an effective one in a lot of ways. But he still does not have any off-ball utility, which means that if you have him on your team, you're kind of conceding that he needs to be your primary playmaker. And I don't know if he is good enough to be that guy for a competitive team, especially when you factor in his substandard defense which has been as bad this year as i've ever seen it that's what that's what makes it so difficult he just to find finding the right team construct for that player i think is really tough especially you know at his salary if he was your sixth man i think you're golden but what are you willing to pay him to be your sixth man is that a role that he's willing to accept given the role that he's played you know to this point in his career that's where it starts to get tricky. So I don't know. I mean, the really interesting thing about the Spurs, though, is... Okay, so cleaning the glass has this new stat, right? It's called location effective field goal percentage, which basically just quantifies uh, the extent to which teams and their opponents are getting shots from efficient spots on the floor. So the Spurs are 30th in location effective field goal percentage on offense, and they're fourth on defense 
Um, they're forcing their opponents to take all the inefficient shots that and they y- themselves are taking. And yet their defense stinks. And yet they're fifth in offense and 26th in defense in terms of efficiency. So, I mean, what can we learn from that? <laughs> like, for one thing, I think, you know, I, I wrote about this a little bit when I was writing about the Nets last week, which is that if you play that kind of conservative drop-back scheme where your guards are trailing over top and you're really making an effort to force your teams into the mid-range and floater range, you still have to contest those shots to a certain extent and if you're not you know like deandre jordan isn't in brooklyn and lamarcus aldridge isn't in san antonio getting a hand up contesting shots at the rim then that strategy isn't actually going to be all that viable so you know if your guards aren't doing a good job of staying attached and trailing over top ultimately you end up conceding just a lot of clean looks from like 12 feet and yeah and that's not a bad shot if you have a competent nba player who's used to having the ball in his hands, and he has an open jumper from 10 to 15 feet, that's actually a pretty good result for your offense. And I think, you know, with Aldridge, he just can't defend in space anymore, and he can't really protect the rim. And I wonder if they shouldn't at least try experimenting with bringing him up higher and, like, hedging and trapping the way that the Nuggets do with Jokic as a means of protecting him and preventing him from having to defend in space. I I don't know. Um but I wanted to to read this because before the season, we did our best case, worst case for all 30 teams. So this was the worst case blurb that I wrote for the Spurs. DeJounte Murray's jumper remains unreliable and squeezing him back into the, into the rotation proves difficult. Regularly trotting out lineups with three or four non-shooting threats and kneecaps of Spurs offense. That actually hasn't happened. DeRozan is put on the trade block, but no suitors emerge, leaving San Antonio to ride out the season with a disgruntled star. At 34, Aldridge proves incapable of playing the five defensively and ill-suited to the four offensively. Lacking a coherent identity, the Spurs finished below 500 and missed the playoffs for the first time in 23 years. Nostradamus. So, I mean, it's the worst case, right? And, like, they're kind of, aside from, like, the fact that their offense has been surprisingly good, like, they're at this worst-case scenario right now, and I'm not entirely sure how. I think they can bank on some regression in terms of, like, they are giving up the shots they're supposed to be giving up. But... I, I don't know. It's it's tough to see how they find their way out of this. I, and I don't know that the season ends in another playoff berth for them. Yeah. I mean, all right, before we move on to Houston, let's just go there. Then. There's 68 games. There's 65 games left in the Spurs season, right? They've only played 17. There's 6 and 11. Do they make the playoffs? Yes or no? <sighs> I, I Like, I'm not burying them, but if I had to pick now, I would say no. Um, and... It's just because I don't know that there's enough upward mobility there without them kind of restructuring their roster, which I just think is going to be too difficult to do. I'm burying them. Okay. I've got the shovel out. (laughs) All right. Let's talk Houston, who I'm not burying, even though I'm not very impressed by them. They had one, I believe, eight in a row. They had gotten Um, to 11 and three. Yeah, seven in a row. Yeah. And they beat some good teams along the way. Yeah, yeah. They were looking good. And then they lose a really thrilling game against the Clippers, which is fine. Then on Sunday, they kind of no-showed at home against Dallas. It wasn't an impressive performance by any means. Advanced metrics kind of paint the story of a team that's not as good as their 11-5 and record. I'm not sure if you saw James Harden's comments after that Friday loss to the Clippers where he was talking about, essentially sounded like he was saying, do you see anybody else getting double teamed out here? Which is like, man, what? What did you smoke before you got in front of that camera, James? Okay, his, well, his he was saying, have you seen the whole, the whole season? They're running double teams at me. 
I've never seen that in an NBA game where you've got really good defenders and someone else running at the top of the key. Y'all let me know the last time you've seen that. Yo, Steph Curry was boxed and won in the NBA freaking finals, okay? There's guys getting triple teamed in the NBA. Now, I don't know if he means like when's the last time you saw a guy get double teamed while he's got another like star on the floor. Like I, I really don't know where he was going with this. And no one asked him to like clear it up. Yeah. No, I think he was talking about like the contact. Like he was getting double teamed when he's just like handling the ball, no screen, 30 feet from the hoop. Which that again, that There's, happens to Steph Curry. It happens to Trey Young now some yeah. games. And, and also, I kind of agreed with him when he was talking about the good defenders part because to me, the Clippers actually have the personnel to just play him straight up. And... I don't know that they necessarily needed to be getting themselves into rotations by bringing two to the ball when, you know, you have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and, you know, even Mo Harkless. Like, I think they have the guys who can do a decent enough job on him one-on-one. And, like, I get they want to get the ball out of his hands. And uh, given the way he's playing, that's a pretty good strategy. But I wonder, you know, if we saw them in a playoff series, whether they would actually maintain that approach i think they probably would unless between now and april or may someone on the rockets emerges as more of a threat so okay here's the thing i actually think one thing westbrook has done for this offense is he's gotten them out in transition more and they're running more like they're number. i, I really want to talk about this so, they're, yeah, they're number ahead. two in pace okay and so he's getting a good offense more possessions to work with and that sounds great and the rockets are number three in offense but he has the worst on-off net rating on the team, and that's not just uh, a defensive issue. With James Harden on the court without Russell Westbrook, the Rockets have an offensive rating of 117.6. That would literally be the greatest, most efficient offense of all time, okay? with West- Slightly behind this year's Mavericks. Okay, true, yeah. There you go. With, uh, with Westbrook on and no Harden, their rating of 107.7 would be equivalent to the 15th ranked team this season. So they go from middle of the pack this season to greatest of all time by substituting those two guys. When both of them are on the court, I think it's it comes in line somewhere around like the 8th or ninth office. Like still not bad, obviously. But any value that you see Russell Westbrook bringing to this offense actually does not bear fruit when you look at the numbers the fact of the matter is they would probably still be better served with Russell Westbrook not on the court like they'd be better served with James Harden and four guys than with James Harden Russell Westbrook and three guys I don't know if I'm quite ready to go that far but I certainly believe that they would be in better shape if they had Chris Paul Do you right know what now. Russell Westbrook shooting on three-pointers this season I think like 23 percent 23 percent yeah his shooting line is 41 23 71 I'm not even so much I mean I am concerned about that but I want to go back to what you were saying about the pace and that was a big talking point coming into the season I mean I talked about it I wrote about it this team played super slow last season and Westbrook would give them a bit of a jolt and allow them to play in the open court a little bit more. And he has. They've gone from 27th in the league to second in terms of the speed of their offensive possessions. They're also one of the least efficient transition teams in the league. And the biggest culprit has been Westbrook. He is in the 33rd percentile in points per transition possession, under a point per possession. And it's just, ultimately, I don't think that I 
fully believe in the Rockets, despite the fact that Harden, Harden is ridiculous. And like, I don't know that, that it matters that Westbrook is on the court and that that is basically leaving an extra roving defender to come and double James Harden. He is still getting 37.9 points a game, 6.1 rebounds, 8 assists, 14.2 free throw attempts, and he's doing it on 38.9% usage. So, you know, so much for his volume being limited with Westbrook in the fold. And I also think that their defense, you know, their defense has been a lot better ever since I kind of buried their defense early in the season, uh, notwithstanding that game against Dallas, which who hasn't been getting shredded by Dallas lately. But I, I just, my feelings about them boil down to my feelings about Russell Westbrook. And I think it was always kind of going to end up here for him. Like he has been so reliant on his athleticism and eventually a day was going to come when physically he couldn't really do what he needed to do to justify the way that he plays. And he's still doing this thing where he's picking petty beefs with people rather than channeling his energy into something productive. His off ball defense is still incredibly inattentive and for whatever reason, like he's just kind of lost the ability to finish effectively around the rim. And like, I don't know that his, his broken jump shot is ever going to be repaired because the free throw percentage is still quite low compared to where it's been in the past. And the three point shooting, like you mentioned, has been pretty abysmal. He's turning it over four times a game. Yeah. Like less than seven assists too. So, and I think the one, you know, the sort of one benefit that he gives them is like, if it's going to be his man that is, just recklessly running at Harden to double team him. Westbrook needs to be that release valve. And basically what he needs to do is he needs to be able to attack a a scrambled defense off of the catch. And I don't think that means shooting threes. I I just think at this point, that's that's not really going to be part of his game anymore. So if Harden is passing out of those traps to Westbrook, he's got to be a rim runner and making plays kind of Draymond Green style, which is weird to say, given like the different type of players those guys are. But... Westbrook's going to be catching the ball in a four-on-three situation. And like that three that he took at the end of the game against the Clippers, when I think they were down two points, or maybe they were even down one, was a perfect example. Like He had a chance, I think, to actually like drive into the paint and either make a play at the rim or make a pass, a kick out. And instead, he pulled up and took the three. And I just don't think at this point in time, that's a good decision for him. Look, I, I like watching James Harden play. Uh, everyone complains about the aesthetics and the flopping and the yeah. over-dribbling or whatever. I, I'm fine with it because I think he is such a wonder kid offensively that I don't think it matters. I think he puts the ball in the bucket. He gets to the free throw line. He helps his team win by doing those things. And I almost don't even care that he's <laughs> as bad as he is defensively because... I think he's just that brilliant on the yeah. offensive end. One thing I will I will say is I think that move where he hooks the defender's arm and then like draws a foul that way, I, they got to find a way to legislate Agreed. That, that. That's out. BS. That's but from his perspective, yo, if it's working, keep doing it. You know sure. what I mean? Like I respect him doing it if yeah. it's working and he's getting to the line. I don't want to re- hate on Harden too much because I think he gets a lot of it already. Also, a big fan of the way. Let's just say that uh, he can enjoy his life and still come out the next day and and give teams fifty. Okay, it's what I, we should all aspire to, right. really. But I have a problem with a guy who, basically, the whole reason Chris Paul's not there and Russell Westbrook is there is because Chris Paul and James Harden didn't get along, and Russell Westbrook and James Harden are boys. Okay, I have a problem with a guy helping engineer that kind of trade because he wanted it 
And then coming out in the media and saying, well, look at the way these defenses are coming at me. Have you ever seen anything like this? Like, one, yes, we've seen something like this. And two, part of it is because you have Russell freaking Westbrook on your team and he's shooting 23% from three and can't hit a pull-up jumper for, like, if his life depended on it. So... It's why players don't make good general managers. Exactly. Like, but that's what I'm saying. To me, that was the most frustrating part about seeing him come out and say these things. It's like, yeah, okay. First of all, what you're saying doesn't even make all the sense in the world. And even if it did, it's partly your fault for wanting the move that you made. Yeah. And I also, I, I, I kind of hate being this guy because I feel like for a long time, I was a Westbrook defender in the face of what I felt like was a lot of really unfair scrutiny. And I will forever cape for his 2016-17 MVP season. Like, it's fine if you think he didn't deserve it, but like to all those people who insist on continuing to bring it up and say that they were on the right side of history for knowing that Westbrook shouldn't have won. Like, also those people need to get over themselves. That really grinds my gears. Like, first of all, that's so not the point. Like, what happened afterwards is not the point. It wasn't just about Westbrook averaging a triple-double that season. The guy averaged 32, 11, and 10, was ridiculous in the clutch, dragged that sorry-ass Thunder team to 47 wins. They had no business winning that many games. And even from the perspective of like he, keeping that team relevant after it took maybe the single most devastating one-two punch in the history of the NBA with that 3-1 series loss to the Warriors, followed immediately by Durant leaving for the Warriors. He made them matter that season. And if you want to just throw that out and say that it's not important or that it shouldn't factor into like MVP discussion, I don't agree. So I'll just say that. Um, I, I have enjoyed watching Westbrook throughout his career, and I, I don't enjoy having to kind of kill him now. But it, he's under 50% true shooting. And I, I just think that that move is ultimately going to end up being a big mistake and, and potentially a waste of what has been another transcendent season from Harden. Another guy having a transcendent season, Luka Doncic in Dallas. So apologies <laughs> to the Grizzlies and Pelicans. We're probably not getting to them this week. So let's, let's finish off with five minutes or so on Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks. Luka Doncic... Now averaging 30.6 points, 10.1 rebounds, 9.8 assists, and 1.4 steals on 50, 35, 82 shooting. The only other guys who have done that, just raw numbers-wise, are Russ and the big O, Oscar Robertson. And obviously those guys weren't shooting the way Luka Doncic is shooting. Uh, His on-off numbers, and I saw some people tweeting about this and like why they can't put him in the true MVP discussion is because he actually has a slightly negative on-off differential, but you should also be able to look deeper than that and notice that the Mavs have the best bench differential in the NBA. It's not like when Luka's on the court, they're bad. Their net rating with Luka Doncic on the court would still equal the second best net rating in the league, which the Mavs have anyway, by the way. This is the number two team by net rating, so I don't think that's a fair counter-argument to his MVP candidacy. The Mavs are 11-5. They're fourth in the West. They've got good wins over Houston on Sunday. They've beaten the Raptors. They won in Denver. I get that you're probably not putting them over Giannis or maybe even LeBron yet, but man, how many 20-year-olds in their sophomore seasons have been this close to just being straight up the most valuable player in the league? Zero. This is... I mean, I can only speak to what I've seen in my lifetime. He is... 
easily the best second year player that I have watched. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers bear that out. Um, whether it's like, like any catch all metric you can pick, whether it's PER, box plus minus, win shares, counting stats, like I, I know like we, we typically want to go a little bit deeper than just surface level numbers, but I feel like in this case, we can probably just rattle off some numbers like 30.6 points, 10.1 rebounds, 9.8 assists, uh, 63.2% true shooting, 33.3 PER, 14.2 box plus minus. Uh, the box plus minus and the PER are both tops in the league. The Mavs have by far the most efficient offense in the NBA. It is almost four points per hundred better than any other team. Uh, the difference between them and the second place Wizards is the same as the difference between the Wizards and the ninth place Suns. And they are destroying teams, destroying them. Um, like you said, I think they're tied actually for the best net rating in the league. Um, he's just been absolutely insane. And he, and he gets better every game. Like every game I watch him, he is just like that much more in control of every element of that team's offense. And he uses deception as well as any player I've ever watched. I don't, know that he's like as good a pure passer as LeBron is or even as LeBron was in LeBron's second season although I don't I know I'd have to go close, back and man. watch but but the way that he uses deception the way that he can look off defenders the way that he just is able to basically choose and make the right decision between the buffet of options he's presented when he's running the pick and roll the way that he's able to use his body to just continue like to get defenders on his hip, to burrow into the lane, to either torch them with that step back or use the threat of that step back to get to where he needs to go. It's unbelievable. And I'm just like thinking about how good this guy can get. Um, coming into this season, we were like, we were speculating about how good the Mavs could be. And I think most of our discussion kind of focused on Porzingis and how good Porzingis would be. I think we expected Doncic to get better, but we'd also seen you know, guys who'd had big rookie seasons either plateau or regress in their second year. You know, Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, Donovan Mitchell. And there was certainly no guarantee that Doncic was going to make this huge leap in year two. And I think, like, if I... I know we typically don't want to, like, reward second-year players with this award uh, because we expect it to be kind of part of the natural development curve. But I think, like, if I had a vote and I was voting right now, I think Doncic would be my most improved player. Yeah, and, and, like, second-year players shouldn't be counted. Like, it, it's called the NBA's most improved player award, right? It's not the most improved player award outside of the normal realms of player development. Like, it's if he's yeah. been the most improved player, I don't care that he's a second-year player. Then do he you, should win the award. Do you agree? Probably, yeah. I think right now, like, I'd, maybe I'd like to think about it a little more. But, yeah, to your point, like, this guy was already kind of a supernova last year as a rookie. He could have just been what yeah. he was last year. And while it probably would have been a little disappointing, there was no leap, it still would have been fine and sufficient right. Okay, for a 20-year-old in his second season in the NBA. The leap he's made, he's gone from just really good rookie of the year to straight-up MVP candidate and turning a team that should be solid but not great into a quasi-contender because that's where the Mavs can be if Luka Doncic continues to play like this. And oh, by the way, if Kristaps Porzingis continues to round into form, which I don't know if a lot of people are talking about it, but he is starting 
slowly but surely to look like the old KP. He started the year real bad offensively. Like, he couldn't hit a jumper to save his life. He wasn't moving that well. The rim protection numbers were there on the defensive end. But other than that, like, kind of looked like a shell of himself. And that was fair. He had been off for, like, 20 months. The last couple weeks, it looks like he's starting to get his bounce back. Even some of his second jumps just on rebounding opportunities have been there. His jumper's starting to fall. He's looked good in their last couple wins. He looked really good against Houston on Sunday. If Porzingis is basically this and a little bit better as the year progresses and Luka Doncic is anywhere near this good this is a contender in the making yeah I don't know if I would go quite that far I think actually if they had signed Danny Green in the offseason I would be willing to put them into that contender sorry I don't mean I don't mean necessarily con- like because I think team this season yeah. I mean contender in the making in the sense that like the backbone's there mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to worry about anything yeah. anymore it's like well we need KP to do this we need right I, I still think they're just, like, missing that, like, 3 and D wing. And, and Green would have been just, like, such a perfect fit there because, like, they have three-point shooters who they can kind of dot around the arc around uh, Luca's pick-and-rolls, whether those pick-and-rolls are with Porzingis or, um, you know, Maxi Kleba or Dwight Powell. They've got Seth Curry, um, who gives you the three-point shooting, and they've got Dorian Finney-Smith, who's been solid at the defensive end, but they don't really have that guy that's giving you both. And... I feel like that's the guy that they're kind of going to miss or that they are missing right now. Um, but honestly, if Doncic keeps playing the way that he's playing, keeps improving game by game the way that he has been, I don't know that anything is off the table right now. It's uh, it's truly unbelievable. And he's doing this while shooting 34.7% from three. Like, if he ever gets to a point where he can hit like 30, I, I don't know that he's ever going to be up over like 40% because of the degree of difficulty on some of those shots. But if he ever gets to like 38% from three and just continues to work on his body to the point that he's a little bit quicker and more aerodynamic, like, I don't know. Like, what is the limit for this guy? It's, oh, it's He's Scott, already it's, just like so far ahead of where any other player has been at his age. I think any time you're talking about player development, if you if the ceiling for a player is MVP candidate, that like that's the definition of sky's the limit. You know, like it, it doesn't get bigger and better than that and with Doncic he's already at that level like not even halfway through his second season at 20 years old so I don't know what the hell's higher than the sky because that's (laughs) like there are no limits on this guy's game on his on his kind of like status within the league you know like old heads respect this kid because he's got it's not just the the quality of play which obviously is the most important but it like, you talk about a swagger and a belief in yourself, and, like, this guy's got it. And I think I think that transcends things a little bit, too. Like, even you look at the way LeBron seems to respect them and, and bigs them up, whether it's on social media or after they play each other in a great battle. Like, you can really tell that these old heads in the league and true legends really do respect this kid. It's like, you know, this... Like, How could they not? That's what I'm saying, He's 20 you know? years old and averaging 30, 10, and 10. Yeah. But uh, that's if you don't respect too. him. Then. There's like something about the way he carries himself on the court oh, yeah. too that I think adds to it as well. Like For there sure. is no, um, there's no like scared of the moment. Yeah. Anything with this guy, like no. the well, what reason would he have to be right. scared of the moment? Like he's so good at and he's joke. been playing pro ball since he was 15. Yeah, you know, on top of just how good he is and the numbers he's putting up, like. I, like you, I enjoy the way that he carries himself on the court. I think he really has like a moxie and a swagger about him. Moxie's a great word. Um, that make him fun to root for outside of just how good he is. And, you know, you were talking about Harden and aesthetics. 
And look, like aesthetics are a really important part of the game. Like we don't just watch this game because we want to know who wins and loses. We watch it because it's entertaining and because basketball, when played at its highest level, is really beautiful. And I think it's totally fine for somebody to watch Harden and decide that they don't enjoy watching him play and that they think that a lot of the shenanigans and the foul baiting ruin what might otherwise be an enjoyable product. Well, Luke, but... And yeah, no, okay, Luca does some foul baiting for sure. He gets a friendly whistle a lot of the time. But I don't think that that is like a staple of his game to the extent that it is with Harden. I don't think that is like necessarily the thing that he is looking to do when he comes down the floor uh, to the to the same extent that Harden does it. And I don't know. There's just like a fluidity and a finesse to his game that uh, I think is pretty incredible to behold. So I had totally forgotten just because I, I, I never changed it and I got so used to it that Luka Doncic is actually still my Twitter header photo, not my profile yeah, picture. Yeah, floating he's my, in the inner tube, right? Yeah, so there's... And this was from when it was... Uh, he was still in the EuroLeague as an 18-year-old two years ago. The EuroLeague every year puts out the worst, cheesiest hype commercials to hype up the EuroLeague season. And two years ago, they kind of made a commercial and a component of this very cheesy commercial, which included Andrea Bargnani, I'm pretty sure, was kind of poking fun at Doncic being this young wonder kid who you know, was the best player in the league at 18. And I don't remember like what old European player at one point is lecturing him and, and Doncic just turns to the camera and says, like, it feels all right, grandpa. Like something along those lines. And I've made that my Twitter header photo. And I just realized on the weekend actually that it still is even though he's now in the NBA but it just kind of speaks to like that that entertaining moxie he has that you can tell he probably always had even when he was a kid amongst men in the EuroLeague the last Doncic note I want to I want to add here before we go is did you see or hear what Tim McMahon I don't want to say reported but insinuated on the Woj pod that Part of the reason the Kings did not select Luka Doncic second overall in the draft in 2018 is because Vladi Divac and Doncic's father didn't really see eye to eye. And Divac saw it as kind of like a, you know, son's going to take after his father. And I don't really like how his father turned out. Now, obviously, there's no way for us to verify with that shoe, but Tim McMahon's a very credible ESPN reporter. I don't think he's throwing that out there if he hasn't heard it from someone somewhat reliable. Yeah. And Um, it's fun to consider the fact that that might be true because that would be so damn kings. uh, Yeah. I I don't know if you saw this, but Grant Napier, who's like the the Kings play-by-play guy, um, tweeted, file this under the headline of irresponsible, embarrassing reporting, 100% untrue. And somebody responded with, how do you know? And he said, because I was with Vladdy today and Luca's dad called. They were laughing about it and talking about how stupid it was. So take that for whatever it's worth. Interesting. I do agree that it's you know a fun hypothetical to consider, which is probably why McMahon said it because yeah. you know it's it's all grist for the content mill at the end of the day, and uh, that's certainly great content. Any, anything where you know the Kings just fall flat on their faces, um, it's uh, it's certainly going to incite the masses. And anything to do with Luka Doncic, man, is great content. It's he wild. is walking fire content yeah. right now. I want to. I want you to try and answer this without thinking about it at all. All right. Let's do this How one. many players in the NBA are better than Luka Doncic right now? Giannis Antetokounmpo. I said without thinking about it. Just say it. Just say it. Giannis Antetokounmpo and LeBron James okay. and Kawhi Leonard. So for sure. Three. Three for sure yeah. are better than him. And I don't think anyone else is for sure better than him. <laughs> like, I think, obviously, there's arguments to be made. James Harden's averaging almost 40 points a game. Fair yeah. enough. But just going by how they're playing right now in this moment... 
I think the three I mentioned are the only ones you can convince me without a shadow of a doubt are better than him. You? I think that I would probably no, no still thinking. have to... Okay, yeah, you're right. I, I would I would still have Harden ahead of him. Okay. Um, I, and I, I don't know that I would have anyone else ahead of him right so now. So we're saying he he's looking like the fourth or fifth best player on the planet <laughs> at 20 years old. Yeah, which is why I think he absolutely should be in the most improved conversation. Because, like, yeah, he had an amazing rookie season, but he was, like, maybe a top 30 player in the league last year, and now he's top five? Come on. You know what I have to say to that? Sounds good to me, Grandpa. It feels all right, Grandpa. <laughs> and on that note, I think we can call it a week. I agree. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. <laughs>